Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting, and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes, and you can join us inside the community where there's 130-plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast. My philosophy has always been to live for interesting experiences. And if that took me to, you know, places that I wouldn't have originally thought I would ever go, then I would go if, if I felt that I was going to gain an interesting experience for my life. That has remained constant in the way I look at my, my work. I wouldn't, <laughs> I would love to say that I have a career management strategy, but I have to be honest, actually in my field, which is, um, it's somewhat, yeah, as you said, perhaps niche. It's, it's, it's not so easy to have uh, a career management structure. Um, in fact, what I have felt is that the only constant that I have really stuck to is the flexibility to take off in very short space of time and go essentially anywhere. Hey, everybody. This is the Career Guide Podcast, brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. Today, we're talking with Alan Robinson, who has recently joined UNFPA as a forensic group coordinator in Mexico. Alan started out as a lecturer in several universities in Guatemala and then transitioned to a position in it of a forensic laboratory director. He then started his international career by joining the United Nations mission in Kosovo and then moving to ULEX in Kosovo, which is the European rule of law mission, where he worked for more than six years. That's actually where I met Alan during our times in Kosovo. And his other international assignments as a forensic expert were in Afghanistan, the U.S., U.K., Kenya, and Congo. Overall, Alan spent 19 years working in the international environment, and today we are going to discuss his view on international careers. Okay. Hi, Alan. How are you? I'm very well, Kyle. How are you? Doing great. Thanks. Um, so just for, for reference for people that are listening to this, uh, we were trying some video but having some technical difficulties. So we have now just gone to audio so that we could get the the interview done because, Alan, you are in the midst of traveling. Is that right? You're quarantined somewhere, I believe. Yes, I'm, I'm currently in, in Johannesburg in a, in a hotel waiting for, uh, for this uh, five-day quarantine to, uh, to finish. Uh, it can't be too soon, believe me. Oh, you're lucky it was five days, not 14 days. Yeah, yes, that's absolutely the case, yeah. <laughs> but you were actually coming from uh, the DRC, is that right? That's right, yeah, yeah, right uh, a week or so ago. Um, I came via Ethiopia, and I had to do like a mini quarantine there of four days. And uh, But yes, 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 I, my, I, I was working in DRC for about uh, almost seven months. 
Okay. Wow. Well, I bet that was challenging. So just for some background, um, and what we were, what I was just saying, you know, before we started the interview is you're one of the very few functional, like really deep experts, um, that I know that works in the international community and, and does so rather consistently. And so most of us have a, a kind of a broad scope of management or something else like that, that we can apply across multiple organizations, but you have a very, very specific skill set, which I think is just really cool. But um, if maybe just give us an introduction about what you do, your kind of portfolio, your background, background where you're from, things like that. Sure, sure. Um, well, I, I, I am a, a forensic specialist. I'm, I'm a forensic scientist, and I specialize in all the forensic steps that are needed to try to locate missing persons. So um, I am a forensic archaeologist and a forensic anthropologist by training. I'm also a criminologist. And these are skills that encompass a wide number of disciplines, um, which contribute to uh, trying to locate missing persons from conflicts of various uh, natures. Um, I've worked in many, several post-conflict zones in several continents over the last almost 20 years. And the main goal of um, trying to find those who went missing during these conflicts and um, once we find them, trying to identifying, identify their remains and hand them back to their families. That's on one side. On the other side, on the other aspect, um, I've specialized in lending support to national authorities that are trying to investigate serious violations of human rights, war crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, genocide, that kind of thing. So that's a, a brief summary of, of the kind of work that I do. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and like I said, you know, really niche, really kind of very specific expertise <laughs> and background that is not really found everywhere. And, and I think we actually met in Kosovo, right? Um, we did many years ago. <laughs> yeah, many, many years ago. <laughs> and I think you were working for the EU at the time. Is that right? That's I was working for NATO. You were working for the EU. I, that must have been a decade or more. Wow, that was a long time. Um, but one of the things that, and, and, you know, I was kind of filling you in a bit is we talk a lot, uh, or this course and, and why we do these interviews are really about perspectives. It's about perspectives of international careers. And so what I'm doing is just a series of interviews and talking to people that I know have, that have managed to have a, a rather, what I would say, long-term international career and multiple engagements overseas and work for various organizations. And, and one of the things that we touch upon is, you know, how do we, how do people get started? So what is kind of your, your origin story? How did you get started with an international career? And you also have quite a diverse background too. So that's also interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I was born in Mexico. Um, my father was uh, English and I mean from the North of England, my mother was Mexican. And um, I grew up in Mexico until I relocated to the UK. So actually, moving around and I did travel well my parents made me travel a lot uh, when I was young so moving around from one place to another was not uh, such a big deal mentally speaking you know so relocating somewhere was not uh, was not not difficult from we already had that mindset I I originally worked in archaeology in and I was very interested in a specific field um, which Took me to back to Mexico, and um, and I was trying to work there. 
but you know, I, I had this uh, amazing dreams of basically uh, finding an archaeological site and uh, working for the rest of my academic career there. Um, things didn't work out that way, and I took the I took that newfound freedom um, to go and study more. And I went to study forensic science. I went to study forensic anthropology at postgraduate level back in the UK. I wasn't very clear how I was going to do it, but I did know what I wanted to do. And that wasn't per se to work in an international arena um, per se. I wanted to go to work in a specific country where I knew they had a, a, a very interesting project, which uh, would teach me a lot. Uh, this was a project of investigation of genocide in Guatemala. Um, so by basically writing emails and trying to meet people in Congress, uh, in forensic congresses and things like that, seminars, I tried to get close to people who knew someone who, would, who was working in this organization. This was, uh, this is, still exists, a very successful NGO called the uh, Forensic Anthropology Foundation of Guatemala. And um, basically, like probably most other young professionals, I was very lucky. I got lucky that I was offered a, a, a post with a very uh, humble starting salary, um, but the opportunity to really immerse myself in what I wanted to do. So that's, that's where I started my forensic career, learning from excellent Guatemalan forensic scientists and also the visiting scholars from other countries like Canada, the US, some European ones as well. Um, so it was a, a really enriching experience, but that was the beginning of that. You know, that kind of echoes what I've heard from many other people when we do these interviews, which is that sometimes people don't necessarily start out with the idea of wanting to work internationally. Um, they sometimes stumble into these things. Uh, so, you know, you never really say, well, okay, I'm just going to go work for the European Union or I'm going to go work for NATO or whatever the case is. It's just that you have these kind of connections in a step-by-step -step process and until people kind of fall into the idea or, you, as you said, you kind of stumble across these, these positions, these openings and these opportunities. Um, and so that's also very interesting in the fact that you've kind of gone in one direction and then taken another one um, and you've kind of landed in the international sphere. But you have worked for a number of international organizations now. What, um, let's see. So you were with the EU, and I think you you had just finished with the UN. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I was I was with the UN first in Kosovo. Um, then I got the opportunity to work with the EU, also in the Balkans. And thereafter, I uh, worked with some international NGOs like Position, Positions for Human Rights. Um, doing short projects, uh, one including in Afghanistan. I also worked with the German International Corporation, uh, better known as uh, GIZ, um, in Mexico. So uh, yeah, yeah, I've been I've been very very fortunate because I've been able to move. I wouldn't say relatively easily, but I've managed to move from uh, big organizations to small NGOs and back to big organizations. I guess uh, in that sense, I've been very lucky. Oh, that's interesting. And so have you found them to be very different amongst the, the big organizations to the small ones? I mean, I've only really worked for the larger organizations. So it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on those smaller ones. I, there, is, there is a world of difference. Um, 
And, and, as, and as there should be, I guess, right? Well, you know, in, in both positive and, and, and perhaps negative aspects, there, there, there is a world of difference. The beauty about working with NGOs, particularly in the earlier part of your, of your career, is that you are really dealing with a frontline real life issues of not having resources and still being motivated enough to try to achieve your, your strategy or, or whatever operational plan that NGO has. And that really calls for some creativity that perhaps you didn't know was there before. There's uh, less bureaucracy. You know, there's a whole bunch of advantages to being strapped for cash because really people do, uh, they really do go the, as, as I guess it could be said, the extra mile. Um, so that's, that's one advantage of working early on in your career in NGOs. Also, you meet people that are extremely interesting and highly motivated. You also meet them in the big organizations, but that's quite variable, I have to say. You, you can meet people of excellent quality that will teach you so much and are, are willing to share, uh, share with you their experiences. Um, so it can be very enriching, but I have found that that's easier in the NGO world than in bigger, more, well, yeah, established organizations. Yeah, that's interesting. Let's talk about that for a minute. So because one of the sections in the career course that we built, we talk about the different organizations that are out there because especially for students coming from the United States or people who are taking the course, uh, whether you're, you know, if you graduated or you're, you're mere mid-career transition, whatever the case is, and you want to work internationally, there's kind of always the big four. It's like NATO, UN, OSCE, and EU. Those are the big ones. Those are the ones that people start with. But the fact that you've worked with an NGO, I mean, there's just so many organizations that are kind of on the periphery, if we say that, that are doing all of these di this different types of work um, that we often overlook. Um, but they provide substantial opportunities. And I like what you said is the fact that, you know, there's you're forced into really gaining experience because you have to learn how to deal with the, maybe austerity is not the right word, but you have to, to deal with the conditions that you're presented in order to be able to achieve these certain effects right. Right, that you want to achieve. In order to be able to execute the program, you have to have come up with creative solutions. And I think right. that's something that people shouldn't skip in their career, right? So if you're, if you're just starting out in your career or something like that, like really go for that experience because it'll build in a certain creativity that you need as opposed to like where I sit today or where you've been before you're, you're sitting today, which is like you're in a bureaucratic organization that limits creativity because it's structured, you know, and yeah, has yeah. internal policies and procedures, et cetera. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I think you, 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 you really can learn on real life skills that are highly transferable to any industry, I have to say, regardless of what your field of expertise may be. So, you know, um, when, when you are um, forced to find innovative ways of making your, uh, of, of, of achieving the, 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 the objectives in your strategy, um, like in, in, and you don't necessarily have all the, all the money to do it, all the resources, uh, and all the support that, that others may have, um, particularly in the world of NGOs. Um, it, it, you really get to learn everything from 
project management all the way to uh, fundraising. Um, of course, you may not necessarily learn this in a very structured way as you would uh, if you are receiving formal training in these things. Nevertheless, learning this thing as you go along and basically trial by error, right? It's trial, trial and error. And applying these things to uh, the projects as they grow or as they evolve, um, it's, it's really highly worthwhile. And I would, I would really recommend it. We're not talking about years and years of having to do this, but a couple of years of doing this would, um, it would mean that you as a young professional, you can offer more than just the, your level of specialty. So you would have more transferable skills that make you much more attractive uh, to have as a colleague because you will actually have lived something. Um, uh, I, I don't know if, uh, if I'm making myself clear. No, absolutely. And I, I completely agree. I think, and, and your point on time is correct, right? So you don't have to do it for 20 years, right? And maybe you love, no, no. maybe people love the work. They could do it for 20 years. There's no problem. But, right. you know, if you go and you get two to three years experience, um, it, it's really something that I think you build a skill set that, you know, you won't find if you want to go work for in New York with the UN, right? And so, that's, that's, but that's really like where the experience is made. Like that, that yeah. well, not all experience, because maybe that's just a broad generic statement. But if we're couching, like, if, if we're talking about the experience of like the tangible creative issues of having to achieve things in a foreign country this is like this is where the rubber meets the road so to speak this is like where you actually have to do the work and come up with ideas and to talk with people and to network and you know all these kind of things to make something happen and it, that's where you really build a lot of experience very quickly that, that, that's right that's right and and ideally um you know with the bigger organizations like un certainly icrc um, and others, you know, the, the people working in the HQs ideally should have been or should be people that had plenty of experience in the field. Um, so there has to be, so, so there has to be a connect between the HQ and the reality of the field. Now I'm talking idealistically, this is obviously not always the case. Uh, and I've lived this many, many times where our HQ will not have an intricate understanding of the needs and realities of what's happening in the field, and therefore will make demands that are disconnected from our reality. One way of overcoming that in theory, and I, I, I happen to agree with it, is to have people that actually made uh, their trajectory in the field before they move to an HQ. Why am I saying this? Well, I'm saying it because I wouldn't recommend younger professionals to, unless they really want to, to aim to go and work in their early part of their careers in an HQ. Not as their main job. If they want to do it as an internship, no problem. But uh, as, a, as a main job, first of all, it's unlikely that they will get it. Uh, and secondly, there will be a disconnect with the reality of the field. And therefore, you may not become as a useful person as you could be. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I mean, that's one of the kind of fundamentals that we teach in the course, which is like, you know, yeah, there's the four organizations. And so there's the periphery organizations, the one that either are supporting international initiatives or have their own kind of programs, you know, ICRC and others. Um, right. But then there's, there's the aspect of where do you want to actually start your career? And this gets into a career management piece, which we can talk about as well. But 
you know, typically in the international sphere, it's like we're working kind of on three-year cycles, sort of, right? Um, most projects are three years. And so what we kind of recommend people to do, especially if you're starting out, is to not work in the headquarters. Don't try for the headquarters exactly for the reasons what you stated, which is like it's competitive and people that are wanting to go to the headquarters often have significant experience. Right. But if you can, start in the field because you do get the value of understanding how these things work. Um, and you also will find additional opportunities available that you are not just, you know, you can either wait, you know, three years for something to open up in Vienna or five years, or you can wait six months for something to open up in the field. And so right. it's just, you know, we kind of recommend like starting in the field and gaining that experience and working your way up to the top, because like you said, also it's how can you make good policy if you don't know how the policy is implemented in the field? You know, and, and this is where, unless, you know, there's all sorts of great ideas out there, but unless you have a fundamental understanding of how the things work in reality, you know, it, the policy often doesn't meet the requirements on the ground. Right, right. So you talk to us a bit about the career management piece, because when I started out many years ago in the international space, there was there, nobody could tell me how this stuff works, right? And it right. hasn't gotten very much better today. Um, no. It's still very much like you have to figure it out as you go. And I, yeah. I think that was one of the core reasons why we wanted to build out this course because, like, you need to actually understand what's happening because you're making you're taking a big risk by leaving your own country and going somewhere and trying to work somewhere else in a, in a you know for an international organization. So you have to understand what you're getting into. But there's this aspect of career management, which we've we've kind of built into this, which, you know, you're kind of a long-term international professional as I am and stuff like that. And we have our own systems of how we manage a career. So how do you kind of look at your own career? Um, are you just keeping kind of like your horizon constantly open and scanning for positions as they come up? Or do you just take, because I understand right now you're taking a break for a few months and then you'll just go back to an organization or how do you kind of manage your own career? What's your perspective with that? Well, there's definitely been a, a very marked evolution um, along the last 20 years. Um, before, you know, once I, I finished in, in Guatemala, which was this place that I really wanted to work in, I was a, still a young professional and I would have gone anywhere in the world that they would have offered me anything, as long as it was within the field of interest. Because my philosophy has always been to um, live for interesting experiences. And if that took me to, you know, places that I wouldn't have originally thought I would ever go, then I would go if, if I felt the, um, the, I was going to gain an interesting experience for my life. That has remained constant in, 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 in the way I look at my, my work. I wouldn't, <laughs> I would love to say that I have a career management strategy, but I have to be honest. Um, actually, in my field, which is uh, it's somewhat, yeah, as you said, perhaps niche, it's, it's, it's not so easy to have uh, a career management structure. Um, in fact, what I have felt is that the only constant that I have really stuck to is the flexibility to take off in very short space of time and go essentially anywhere. As long as that place that I'm going to sounds interesting. It sounds like I can contribute and also learn more. 
That's, that's been my overriding philosophy throughout my career. And I don't think that's going to change. You know, in my, in my field, uh, particularly in the international arena, once you get a contract, these contracts are not going to last very long. They will be either six months or one year. In, in the last 20 years, I don't recall ever. In fact, I, I know I've never had a contract that lasted more than a year and then it had to be renewed. So obviously that brings with it certain dynamics, which you have to adapt to very quickly, um, which means uh, the ability to move, move on to another location uh, as soon as you have an opportunity, if you want to, or sign a new contract in the same place and then work another six months, another, another year. So, you know, there has, one of the things you have to recognize is that you will never get this type of, shall we call it stability, although I think it's a bit fake to use that term nowadays in the, in the job market, but let's call it stability, that you may get a contract that is five years or three years. Um, in my field, that is unusual, highly, highly unusual. It's not impossible, but it's highly, highly unusual. It just so happens to be that with the organizations that it's possible, I do not find their work interesting. So they, I'm not attracted to them. Obviously, I won't mention which ones they are. But um, for the kind of work that I enjoy doing and that I'm good at, uh, yeah, we're talking about very short projects that can last six months of very intensive work or a year of a very intensive work with the possibility of an extension afterwards. This is what you have to get used to. It sounds chaotic and it is. So therefore you cannot have a very well-defined um, career management per se. But one thing is if you're not passionate about this work, and I'm not talking about my specific field, but about working in different countries with all, the, all that that means, if you're not passionate about it, then uh, don't even try it, don't even go there. Uh, because uh, there, there's many uh, disadvantages that, uh, <clears throat> that that you can face. And one of them is the lack of job stability. Yeah, you know, I was actually laughing when you were saying that because, you know, I don't recall ever signing more than one a year contract either. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually, yeah, that's actually very true. Yeah. Um, because, you know, everything is one year. Everything's a one-year budget cycle. If you're lucky and you are in Vienna or you are in, well, not even lucky. I mean, if you build the experience and you get the job and you're in Brussels, then, you know, you'll sign a three-year contract, for example. Um, but those are kind of at the headquarters positions, which should be late yes. career, end-stage career for most people. You know, everything you said is very much true, which is why I think also that we have to manage our career like our own business, Right. We have to we have to look at it like we have to manage everything ourselves. And and by career management strategy, I mean like internally for us. I mean there's not there's nobody doing it for us. Right. So we have to look at it like, okay, we have to keep our skills up, we have to get our experience up, we have to, you know, we have to manage our own steps to progress through the international community. And I think, you know, and maybe in today's day in, in the States and in, in Europe, you know, it maybe it's very much the same now because we talk about the gig economy and and how things have changed and there's no longer retirement from big companies anymore. But, right. but I think also to a certain extent, it's, we, I think in the international community, we're much more, I think we're much more aware of it. But what I kind of liked about what you said was the fact that, you know, you get one year contract and then you kind of need to plan a bit 
You know, yes. and this is something that we also talk about, like, okay, you got six months or 12 months, and then what are you going to do? Which is coming to your point. Like, you can do six months or another 12 months. But you kind of have to decide what you're going to do. And one of the things that is, I think, is most important for people to understand, especially if you're just starting out, like, okay, the first six months will go by so fast, especially if you're starting out. But you've got to keep your head in the game a bit. You've got to keep an awareness because you have now just six months left before your contract could, in theory, you know, not be um, renewed. So right. having some clear objectives and then having, you know, if, if you do think, okay, I'm going to sacrifice a bit more, I'm going to stay another year, then here's what I want to achieve. You know, and really clear, defined goals to make it worthwhile because, like you said, there are downsides to it as well. You're away from your family, you're away from your yeah. friends, you're completely in a new environment. Um, when I came to Ukraine, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, I would think, oh, I, I, I speak German. Maybe somebody speaks German, you know, I, and of course it's all in Cyrillic. I can't read anything. Like it's been a bit of a challenge, you know, nobody, speaks, nobody speaks English. So, right. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of new. So, but I'm used to it. You're used to it. We can move through these societies now with no problem, but it, in the beginning, it's tough. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, you, you adapt to it, but um, it, it it is nice that you're uh, trying to mentor people along uh, with your with your program because um, what you said at the beginning is very true. Um, yeah, at least when I started, there was no way, absolutely no way, that I could get any guidance on what to do next, and that that, that has not changed. Uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, I, I guess uh, I guess your program is a little sui generis uh, in that sense. I've certainly never heard of um, anything like it. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. The more the merrier. That kind of makes me think to a certain extent that like I, I feel like at least I did back then. I felt like you know, well, people are keeping secrets. Like there's some secret and they're just not wanting me to move around or whatever the case is, you know, and, but maybe it's a very competitive field, you know, uh, and it's becoming more and more. So there's no, we, we, we cannot deny that. So, um, I, I, perhaps some, I, I've certainly met people that I would interpret that they were doing the same thing, Kyle, um, you know, <laughs> which is a bit silly because it only takes, you know, a, a bit of brain to find out what's really going down. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we cannot deny that it's a very, very competitive, competitive field. Uh, it's becoming more, more and more so because, you know, um, resources are not what they used to be. Um, I certainly know that in, in my line of work, uh, there is a definite shift from executive work, meaning actual investigation, to uh, local capacity building, uh, which is um, also a great thing to do. It's way cheaper than doing investigation yourselves as a mission, and it has a longer lasting uh, impact if you do it right. The problem is not everybody's doing it right. Uh, so even though there's this shift, uh, you know, and in, 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 in what missions are doing simply because there's not enough resources to do what they were doing before, you know, uh, if it's some of it is not doing very well, indeed, I'm telling you from personal experience. And I think, you know, exactly what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think a, a degree of it is competitive. Yeah. And, uh, but I think also a degree is that, you know, people just don't know. So 
it's a bit of both, but it doesn't detract from the fact that we have to do it ourselves, right? And that hasn't changed in 20 years, which I still find to be amazing. But what I have seen is that some organizations like OSC um, have gotten better about trying to tell people how to apply and what are competency-based interviews and all this kind of stuff like that. That, that information is starting to get out there. But in to understand, but I think it stops, right? So they will help you up to the point of you get hired and then that's it. And then they say, here's the cap on the amount of time you can spend with us. And then after that, you know, best wishes. <laughs> but because then after that, it's like, it's not really their concern and their mandate. So they're not too worried about it. Well, let's kind of, let's, let's kind of transition a bit, a bit because you've got um, such a broad range of experience. I mean, in, in, in such a specialized field that I'd like to talk about like networks for and networking for a second, because you've done such a wide range of stuff too. You were also working in a museum for a bit too. Is that right? Oh yeah. I've, 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 um, I've actually volunteered uh, to work in museums. Um, I, I, it's something I really enjoy. So yeah, I, 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 I did some work in Kenya in the uh, national museums of Nairobi. And uh, that, that was really enjoyable. I was teaching uh, human osteology, so things about human bones, um, to to some of the staff that felt that they needed a, a little bit more support than that. Oh, that's amazing. So wh- what do you think about, and how useful has it been for you in your career, kind of the power of, of networks and networking and just, you know, maintaining contact with, with people over the years? Um, I, I have to confess, Kyle, that I'm... I, Networking is, is not my strongest point. Um, I, I, I fully acknowledge it's, uh, the, the need to be uh, better at, at it. I don't think it's rocket science, but uh, at the same time, it, it is an important, an important skill. Now, what I have seen in later years of my, of my career is that if you don't have quality behind you, if you don't have a solid CV with provable achievements, uh, then your networking is for nothing. Um, so networking per se uh, on its own, uh, it might be useful in certain occasions, um, but if there's not something that you can back it up with, meaning the quality of your own work and your own uh, reputation, uh, then it won't take you that far. Also, we have to be, I think young professionals have to be careful with what exactly their definition of networking is. Um, I do know a few uh, a few colleagues that boast of the fact that they have, you know, for the last X amount of missions, they've never been interviewed for them. They've just been taken in because of their vast network. And well, that's, that's very nice for them, but it's not so, it's not very sustainable. You cannot just depend on your friends (laughs) to get a job or on people. You need to build alliances that are solid and actually uh, whose pillars are based on the quality of your work and your integrity. So before worrying, I would advise, you know, youngsters in, at least in my field, before worrying about who you know and whether they know you, is make sure you know your own stuff very, very, very well and you're able to share it and you're able to sell yourself in an accurate professional way because that's where you get the long lasting connections that are meaningful. There are people in my field with whom I would do anything to work with again, because they left such a professional 
an endearing um, impression on, on me uh, as a professional, you know? So yes, networking is extremely important. There's no doubt about it, but it has to be networking with substance and building alliances and relationships that are meaningful, not simply knowing or being known um, for your excellent socializing skills. No, you have to be excellent at what you do. Otherwise, uh, you may end up in a network of mediocrity. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. No, that's actually, that's, I like the way you said that because networking can help you identify the opportunity. Um, right. but, and that will get you to the door, so to speak. But your experience, your ability to convey experience, your ability to convey confidence, your ability to be likable, um, all these things will what or what actually gets you the job at the end of the day. Yes. Um, and so I, I like the way that you've kind of framed that because we hear we didn't really go into networking a lot into the course, but I think that one of the things that um, is just extremely important is to be able to build that foundation of knowledge to be credible and then yes. to maintain those networks because that's where people point you to things um, yes. and say, you know, oh, hey, Alan, I was just thinking about you. Here's this thing. Maybe you're interested, but you still have to apply. Of course. Right? Uh, because, of course. you know, it, it, because it gives you greater situational awareness and a community, as you're saying, but at the same time, um, you still have to have the merit to be able to, to get and do the job. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. And, yeah. and, and in, in the end, um, it, it feeds you as a professional that if you, if you win a post um, because of the quality of the work that you do, um, it, it actually consolidates you as a professional. And you cannot begin to call yourself your expert, an expert, until you have actually done a, a number of years. Uh, in our, in my situation, a number of cases of particular complexity, and a, a, a number of postings um, that that require people to trust you and you to put your neck out on the line. Like we do this all the time by going to court, for example, and presenting our findings in court. So, you know, this uh, is one of the mechanisms that helps people in forensics and in law in general to stick their necks out and prove their quality, uh, the quality of their work. Um, so, you know, it's actually taking those professional risks that will actually consol uh, consolidate the, the, the networks that are worth having. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting example because I think we're starting to see a degree of that with the interviews. And the boards that, you know, we sit on or that I, you know, that uh -huh. I sit on now, I have one coming up in the next week or so. But it's with the competency-based interviews. Right. And so in the, to a certain degree, not obviously as in a court of law, but to a certain degree, you know, you're sitting there in front of people and you have to demonstrate your experience. And how do you demonstrate experience is by conveying a certain competency and saying, okay, you know, this situation happened and this is what I did and this is, you know, what the results were and these were the effects that I achieved. And you have to be able to demonstrate that competency, competency and, and to be able to articulate it into a board. Right. And so it, it's very much aligned, although albeit a very, you know, soft version of, of what's happening in a court system. But it's interesting that, you know, your expertise is built on that because you could almost draw a direct correlation to the job interviews these days. Oh, which are yeah, that um, people don't yeah, really ask you yeah. like these open-ended questions anymore. They're like, tell us exactly what you did and why yes. you did it. Yes. And it has to be provable. You know, you have to be able to prove what you're saying. You have a, a, a proven track record. 
that's the standard text nowadays, uh, as it should be. You know, so yes, um, yes, absolutely, I agree. There are par strong parallels between these two things. So one of the last questions that I ask, because we've already gone on about 45 minutes, it's gone by pretty quick, is that when, if you were just starting out, and there's kind of, maybe it's a two-part question. If you're just starting out and you're in the, so you're just starting university, but you know you have the bug, you have the itch, you want to work internationally, what would be a piece of advice to give to somebody in that, in that kind of um, state of their life? And then what would you say for somebody that is maybe a graduate, somebody that is maybe even a, a junior professional or young professional, or maybe even just in career transition, and they want to start working internationally? Uh, do you have any kind of thoughts on, on those two points in people's lives and, and what they might be doing differently? Yes, I, yes, I do. And uh, I'm hesitant to say that they will be valid, but I will tell you anyway. And, and this is learning from my own shortcomings. Uh, one is learn languages without a shadow of a doubt. Make sure that you know more than one language. Uh, this, I know it sounds obvious, but believe me, it's not. Um, learn the international languages that are spoken in the UN, in the EU, um, in, in the big organizations, NATO, whatever. Learn French, learn, learn Spanish. Uh, learn Arabic, you know, have that, <laughs> really have that edge. Languages have been really neglected. Um, so, uh, and, and I have, I have, I have paid, uh, I have paid this. I, I've been very slow with, with my French. I'm still useless at it. And it's, it's something that um, I have, it's been a, a severe mistake not to pay more attention to that. So it, from your early studies, at university level, uh, make an effort to learn languages. It really, really, it gives you the edge. It really does. Um, that's one thing for for postgraduates or or, or young professionals, newly graduated professionals. It, <laughs> make sure that um, actually it applies. This this advice would apply to both instances. Make sure you learn about um, project management. Really. It's not as boring as it sounds. And it's something that you can transfer to any field. It doesn't matter what your specialty is. So project management really is uh, something advantageous. It makes you a, a more of a strategic thinker um, and it, it sets you on a good path that will further down the line, you will be grateful that you did that. So do pay attention to these things. As boring as they sound, um, they're really very useful. If, if I were to um, to narrow down or just, you know, to those two advices, those would be the ones. Uh, learn languages and get very, very, very clued up about project management. At the very least, at the very least, uh, make sure you know what it's all about because there's a number of work strategies, if we can call it that way, um, which derive from project management ideas. And these concepts are what are generating several of the concepts of the missions, you know? So um, uh, how you monitor, how you evaluate, how you mentor, um, how you build local capacity, how do you measure the success of the project that you are in, engaged in will require some understanding of project management. So the more, the better. Those would be two very concrete things I would go for. Fantastic. 
Right, Alan. Thank you very much. I really do appreciate it. And it was really good talking to you, my friend. And yeah, uh, the advice, yeah, as you. always, yeah. and the advice, as always, is, uh, is wonderful. So thanks a lot. All the best, Kyle. Thanks so much. All right, you too. Bye-bye.